I'm sitting in a brewery in Maldestrift at Steve Gilroy's old brewery and it's been here for a long, long time, long before most of the other breweries, these new craft breweries started popping up across the country. And with me is a is a guest who's been involved in another craft business and that is Distillique and the craft distilling industry. Welcome, Andre. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, what a wonderful place to meet. I mean, it's we we both love the drinks business and we we love craft and uh, so it's it's exciting to be here. You, obviously, you live close by here, or is this on your way home? Or what? Yeah, it's actually on my way home. I had a client that uh, quickly needed to discuss his new distillery setup, so it was a good central place to meet. And obviously, <laughs> there's good beer to drink as yeah. well, which is always a, yeah, a benefit. Yeah. I love it. I love it. There's nothing better than a beer garden. So you work for Distillique. Uh, how long have you been working with them? Um, well, sometimes feels like forever. But it, I think it it's can't be forever no. because I think when I met Gert, you weren't working there. No, I wasn't. No, it's been about, uh, I think this is my sixth year there. So it's almost six years okay. that I've been with Distillique now. And what did you do before that? Um, oh, a lot of things but um, also in the liquor industry to always involved in liquor in the industry to a certain extent um, studied engineering but ended up firstly working in the wine industry okay. um, down in Wellington and Paul uh, spent a couple of many many years in hospitality and related industries where I ran some liquor stores I was in the liquor trade really? uh, was involved with um, clubs with bars event management so I saw all sides of the of the liquor industry from production to um, distribution to retail sales to on con and off con so wow so I can't really teach you anything yeah? <laughs> yeah, you're never too old to learn. Who knows? <laughs> okay, that's a very interesting angle. So, engineer and and tradesman. Yeah, wonderful. And uh, how did the dislike uh, thing happen? Well, I was actually tired of being in the in the hospitality yeah. industry. I was ops manager for a brand up here in um, in Gauteng, and I was tired of that. Um, and then uh, at the same point in time, I was wanted to get out of that industry. Gert was looking for somebody to get involved with the sleek and take over training, which was also something I had experience with. Yeah. And because I had the right combination of backgrounds, the technical side, the fermentation side from the winemaking, the retail side and everything, I, it was a good fit. And it was basically a two-hour interview, started the next week and took over training a week later. So, yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Wrapping very quickly. I mean, I can hear from, or I can read, or I can read into your skills that there's a lot of technical background. So it's, I don't think it often comes with with the actual hands-on retailing background. No, no, no. I'm a very curious person by yeah. nature. So if I read something, I'm also a doubter. Um, okay. I don't believe marketing stuff. And yeah. if something doesn't make sense from a technical perspective, then I check and I research. And yeah. I mean, that way you expand your knowledge base. You get to know a little bit more about what's actually going on. And the more you learn, then you start practicing and applying that knowledge, testing it for yourself. Does it actually work? And uh, that's how you become more... You expand your skill set. Yeah. When this is an industry, pretty much like I would say the IT industry, you never stop learning. Yeah. There's always something else you can try. It's always a new technique, always a different point of view or a different way to do it. So you continuously expand and you educate yourself. Mm. So tell us a little bit about Distillic. For me, Distillic is is the company in Centurion that brings in. Uh, distilling vessels or equipment, <laughs> uh, but there's obviously more to it. There's a lot of training happening. There is. I mean, Distillic, um, for those 
people that don't know, was uh, founded in 2007 by MD Gert Bosman. Um, he's a chemical engineer by trade, so he started distilling as a hobby, and he reached a point where he was tired of being an engineer. He wanted to see, uh, in his own words, he was tired of solving other people's problems for them, and he wanted to see, but can he turn his hobby into a business? So I had some lawyers look into it, and at that point in time, and still, uh, home distilling was illegal, or mm. is illegal, in terms of the Liquor Act. But in terms of the Excise Act, if you're registered as an Article 116 manufacturer, you are legally allowed to distill at home for own use. Um, you're not allowed to sell the product, obviously, but you can distill for mm. yourself. And it was at that point that he realized, but there's now a gap in the market. Mm -hmm. um, he already knew from his travels overseas that craft was a thing. Uh, craft spirits was going to come to South Africa at some point, And people would need the ability to do product development. Um, and then also just maybe to distill it home for fun. Mm -hmm. So this leak was founded basically on the principle of building a pyramid. Uh, first level of the pyramid being uh, creating knowledge or awareness. That, yeah. listen, you can do this at home. And you can do it legally. We found um, a loophole. Yeah, exactly. Creating the need. Then fulfilling that need in terms of training. Literally training a home distiller how to be a hobby distiller, but then expanding continuously on that training um, to, to, to up to a commercial level. Um, then providing equipment and consumables, both mm -hmm. on the home level and on the um, commercial level. And then finally is support. Um, which is what where SACTI comes in, uh, representation on a national level, uh, where we get laws changed, um, engage with government, engage with the Department of Agriculture, engage with SARS to make things work better, yeah. work easier, to protect the industry. Um, those are our primary goals. And ever since it started, this league's grown by leaps and bounds. I mean, literally, it started in Gert's office. It yeah. was His only product was a booklet that he sold online. Um, now we're bursting out of the seams out of 500 square meter factory and uh, we're continuously just growing. Trained up to 8,000 people to date from about 68 what? different countries. Um, we've set up over 104 distilleries in 16 different countries. We're busy with distilleries now currently. We've done one in Lebanon. We've done, uh, we're busy with one in Hawaii. Uh, we've done a distillery in Dublin and then obviously a lot, of, a lot in African countries as well. Um, so do you get to fly to Hawaii? Not yet. We're fighting about that one. Uh, uh, Kevin, our client, is, uh, he's bought his farm where he's setting up the story. He's actually going to be producing mampur, South African mampur in Hawaii, um, a, a banana and a pineapple mampur. Uh, because one thing that people in South Africa don't realize is that our we're seen as one of the most knowledgeable countries about fruit-based spirits in the world, next wow. to maybe Germany. Yeah. And internationally, there's this massive demand for fruit-based spirits, but in South Africa, it's not even a legal category yeah. when you fall under unspecified spirits, which I see as an insult. Yeah. Um, so we're flying up to Kenya now next week for a big distillery sitting up there, probably one of the biggest ones we've done to yet. Uh, Africa, very much a growing market in craft spirits, so we're going to be seeing a lot more African uh, craft spirits coming out. Um, so no, there's it's... The industry is going by leaps and bounds, and correspondingly, mm. this leak is also growing. So, is it all all, all craft spirits? Yeah, craft our focus uh, our focus is craft. And and how do you define that? Well, craft means many things to many different people. Yeah, I mean, this can be a, a two hour long conversation yeah. on its own. But um, I mean, if you ask a big brand, what's craft? Uh, guys like Makers Mark and mm. uh, Sipsmith and Monkey 47, people that have been bought out by Diageo and Pernod Ricard and so on. If you ask them what's craft, they say um, innovation. It's different. Yes. Okay, now let's, let, let's look at that definition just for a moment. When the first bottle of Jack Daniels came out, it was unique, it was different, mm. it was innovative. Do we consider Jack Daniels craft? No. No. When the first bottle of Smirnoff came out, same thing. It was yeah. different, it was unique. 
but we don't consider small of craft. So mm-hmm. by that definition, do we now put a time limit on craft? If you don't change the recipe within two years, then you're no longer craft. Then that definition yeah. doesn't make sense. So one of the things we've been trying to do with SACTI is, uh, which is the Southern African Craft Distilling Institute, which this league started in 2009. Now, we've been working for a couple of years now. It's not like a once-off thing we had this mm. thought. We've been trying to work out a legal or future possible legal definition for craft because we want to emulate what's already happened in other countries like the USA mm. where craft is defined and gets certain benefits, either excise tax reduction or a different licensing category that allows them to be in commercially zoned areas, all those type of things. We will, that's the end goal of SACTI is to end up with a legal definition for craft. But before we can get there, we need something that's commonly accepted yeah. that the everyday consumer knows and understands and respects that makes it easier to get something written into law so when we came up with a definition for craft for South Africans we based it on the requirement that it had to be measurable it had to be level, uh, relevant and it had to be um, clearly defined mm. with the idea someday this would need to be taken up into law so we came up with a definition. We tried it over a course of a couple of years with clients and so on in classes. We'd get their opinion, get their feedback. It was tweaked over the years. And then in 2016, when we had the first SACTI conference, we had over 100 craft distillers and future craft distillers present at the conference. And we submitted this proposal uh, to them of what we see the definition of craft to be. Um, it was discussed at length. Mm. It was an exhausting process uh, over the course of two days. And in the end, we voted. And the definitions as they currently stand for SACTI was um, adopted by overwhelming majority. I'm talking 87 to 94% in favor, depending on which definition um, you're looking at. And we tried to define three different things. Firstly, what constitutes a craft spirit? And then secondly, the manufacturing facility, which is defined between a craft spirit producer and a craft distiller. So in terms of what defines a craft spirit, we focused on three things. Um, size, because in the feedback mm-hmm. we got from everybody, for them craft meant small batch, small yeah. size, limited edition, that type of thing. So the size is limited. In terms of ownership, ownership is important. It has yeah. to be owner-operated. So we don't want to discourage big investment, but big investors cannot have control. Yeah. You can't have a company like Pernod Ricardo, for instance, buying into a craft distillery and continue trading as craft, but meantime they change the whole process about how the product is being developed. So ownership majority has to remain in non-publicly traded entity control. And also in terms of how the product is made. Um, automation is a great thing, but if, if your laptop is making your alcohol, then how can you be considered craft? Mm. The whole hands-on approach. We try to find legal definitions of things that people expect in in everyday life. And handmade, handcrafted, that's an important thing that people expect from craft. So, yeah, limited automation is allowed, but no integrated automation. Can't be automated from beginning to end. Mm. If you comply to the definitions, of exactly definition of that, your product is considered a craft spirit. Mm. But now we get to the manufacturing facility. And like I said, we differentiate between a craft spirit producer and a craft distiller. And the reason for that is distillation is a clearly defined technical term. Distillation is a separation of alcohol and other compounds from a fermentation. If you're not working from fermentation, you're not a distillery. Mm. So there's no way you can buy in neutral spirits okay. or uh, any other spirit for that matter and then call yourself a distillery. That's not acceptable. So, what, so um, just explain that. So in, in, in today's trained, uh, in the gin trained, are there a lot of people that don't 
do that? Yes, yeah. I would say the majority of craft gins okay. in South Africa is um, is made from purchased spirits, mm. and that's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, it is there's a lot of benefits from buying in a neutral spirit and turning that mm. into into gin, and I say specifically neutral for a reason. Um, I mean, there is still craft involved in taking that basically vodka and mm. turning that into a, a great craft gin. There is craft involved. Mm. There's skill involved. There's art involved. There's passion involved. Um, the benefit of doing it that way, obviously, from a manufacturer's point of view, is um, initial setup cost mm. and knowledge. You don't need to know how to make a fermentation. You don't need to know how to distill. Uh, but you need to know how to make a good craft gin, and many good craft gins are made that way. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying they're not craft products, but they're not distilleries because they're not distilling from a fermentation. Okay. Um, so not, I'm not taking in away from, uh, anything away from brands that make their products that way. I have the highest respect for them. Creating a good gin recipe to make a good gin, there is skill involved with that, and it should be appreciated, it should be respected. But it takes more skill and more knowledge to work from fermentation because mm. now you need to know how to distill. You, now you need to know how to make a good fermentation if you are actually working from the raw material, not buying in a fermentation. Mm. There's more risk involved because fermentations can go off. Distillation batch can go badly. Um, there's more cost involved because you need more equipment. You need uh, bigger equipment to produce the same amount. Mm. I mean, a 100 liter still uh, just doing gin or for purchase neutral spirit base can make 125 bottles of gin a day. That same 100 liter still working from fermentation can only make 25 bottles. Mm. Um, so there's more risk involved. And that's one of the reasons we wanted that definition clarified because a distiller deserves the consumer's respect and admiration yeah. because what he's doing is a lot more difficult and it takes a lot more in terms of work, in terms of effort, in terms of knowledge, in terms of investment. Um, and that should be appreciated and rewarded. Um, and again, I'm not trying to take away anything from people that buy neutral spirits and turn that into gin. I'm not saying the product's not craft. But you're talking apples and oranges. Yeah. It's not the same thing. And in the end, it comes down to the fact that craft is not a cheap product. By definition, we pay more for craft because we appreciate the value that went in there. So when two products are standing side by side, you as the consumer have the right to know which product was made which way. So if I'm going to spend 400 rand today on a bottle, or 500, these days up to 700 rand a bottle, where should I be spending that? Should I be spending that on something that was made by Destel and they put on craft on the label, which is mm. currently happening? Or should I spend it on somebody that bought in neutral spirit and infused that? And if it's a great product, buy awesome, by all means buy yeah. it. Or should I spend it on the guy who actually went out and maybe even grew the grain himself and milled it himself and made that into a beer and distilled that beer to a vodka and then took that vodka and turned that into a gin? Mm. I, mean, I think anybody who's a reasonable person can decide for themselves where the value lies. Yeah, and I mean, the quality, and again, like you say, the quality of an NCP or a, or a cane, cane spirit or sea spirit or a grape spirit from Odo Merlin isn't, it's probably, I mean, they've, let me turn it into a question. Mm. Would, I mean, the quality of that neutral spirit, because they use, obviously use expensive equipment, is it mm. better than something that a small guy can do? It's very difficult to to, to say that I mean the only way you can break it down to is a technical analysis yeah. I mean quality is a perception yeah. and it's one of the reasons I never 
comment on one brand over the other or something because quality is a personal mm-hmm. perception. Yeah. And either you like it or you don't like it. And I'm not going to tell somebody they should like something or not. So when it comes down to quality of a neutral spirit, part of that might be perception. I mean, mm. neutral spirits are not all made equal. Um, mm. Uh, again, I'm not going to name brand names, but I mean, there's in the Western Cape, there's two suppliers of, uh, of neutral spirit in bulk. And I, I personally prefer the one above the other okay. because it's slightly sweeter and smoother. Yeah. So there are differences. They're not all created equal. There's voice to fix that, though. As a rule, I tell uh, clients to redistill or at least draw off heads or so forth if they're using purchase neutral just to be sure, just to ensure yeah. the product quality is the best it can possibly, possibly be. Um, in the end, I don't think it's necessarily about quality. I'm, I mean, don't get me wrong. Not every craft distiller is going to make a high-quality product. Mm. Uh, but a lot of people make the mistake to assume craft means quality. That's not the case. Yeah. That's unfortunately yeah. not the case. We've seen that in craft beers. We see that in craft spirits. Not all products are created equal. It depends on the person. It depends on their processes. But that's what makes it interesting. Yeah. That's what makes it valuable because there are differences. You, you literally, when a guy made, when a distiller distills a fermentation and he gets that neutral spirit out there, that spirit is a combination of his personal choices, his feelings, his tastes. What did he want in that product and what did he not want that in that product? Mm. You don't get that with a purchased neutral spirits because those choices were made by a machine. Um, it was made by an automated system. It was made by a computer. It's not made by the individual. And that's what puts a distiller apart from a producer. Yeah. Because those personal choices was not just limited, in the case of gin, to botanical choices. It rolls down all the way, right down to the fermentation. Which grains did I choose? Which yeast did I choose? What temperature did yeah. I ferment at? And, 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 and. And if you look into the whole process and everything that goes into this process, it's, there's so many choices. There's so many variables. And that's what makes it unique. That's, yeah. that's what makes it different. Yeah, one of the most interesting stories is about Obiki. Mm-hmm. And A.K. Sterling just passed away, I think it was yesterday or the day before. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I mean, imagine being a potato farmer in Scotland and your sons, I think, turn the potatoes into a beautiful spirit. And, exactly. And, yeah, so, yeah. I mean... It, and that's what people fall in love with. I yeah. mean, um, uh, I recently wrote an article where I mentioned that there's a new category of consumer. And mm. it, this is not my category. This was defined by William Grant and Sons, their annual market research paper that they published. In last year's paper, they actually created this new category of the activist consumer. Yeah. And the thing about the activist consumer, which is, f- according to me, by definition, the craft consumer, mm. for them, the quality of the product is not necessarily the determining factor. They buy into the provenance. Where did this product come yeah. from? The methodology. How was it made? The people become mm. extremely important. The craft distiller or the craft spirit producer themselves become the brand. Yeah. Um, always in business training, I, I hop on that fact that nobody can market your product as good as you. You can pay the guy the biggest salary in the world, but in the end, he's marketing your product, not his own product. Therefore, yeah. you will never have the passion for what, you be, uh, what you're selling and what you're producing that you have. Um, so people buy into that. They buy mm. into the story. Behind the um, behind the product, yeah. be, be that a made-up story um, or be that a hundred yeah. percent true story, but that but again, that's important yeah. in craft. And it can't be I'm a gray I'm area. Yeah. It must be either hundred percent made up, where it's blatantly obvious it's hundred yeah. percent made up, or it has to be hundred percent truthful. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think about seven or eight years ago we started a, me and a friend started our own brands and it was completely all fake but mm. 
we I said I'll never ever in my life sell somebody else's brand again because mm. it it takes the lifeblood out of you. It does. I mean, I worked for Bavaria Breweries for mm. many many years, and and I lived the brand, and I said I can't do it again. Mm. And but what you say is true because I, as much as I love helping the craft distillers or the makers mm. of these brands get into the market, I. I can't do it without them. No, you can't. Because I'm there to hold their hands, but I can't be them. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the big mistake a lot of brands make is that they go too far too fast. Mm. Um, I mean, you cannot grow your brand and your distribution area faster than you can support yeah. that brand. So it's all good and well. I'm a distillery or a craft spirit producer up here in Gauteng, and now I'm down in Montague Gardens yeah. in Cape Town, and my product's there. Now my product's standing there, and it's standing on the shelf because yeah. nobody in Montague Gardens, Cape Town, knows about my brand. Yeah. They don't know me. They don't know what I'm doing. They don't know what my brand's about. And I'm still establishing my brand up here in Gauteng. I can't now travel down to market the brand down there because I need to focus where I am now. Yeah. And that's the big mistake a lot yeah. of guys make. They go too far too fast. Yeah, and then on top of that, the Cape Townians don't generally support <laughs> other people <laughs> whereas happens, every, everybody else supports the Cape Town brands yeah, <laughs> but I mean but this uh, but it also comes down to a question of scale yeah. I mean uh, I get a lot of guys that come to me and they, they start off okay I design a distillery for me they can do 30,000 bottles a month so okay I can do that I can do that no problem well, I can just pull one out of a file I've got them but why do you want to be that big mm-hmm. look at me and like but I want to make money saying, okay, listen, if you're entering into this because you want to make money, then already I'm kind of Mm. not interested in you. Because the question you need to ask yourself is how much money do you need? Mm. Not how much do you want, how much do you need? There is money to be made in a craft distillery, yes. Otherwise people wouldn't be doing it. But it comes down to why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you're really passionate or are you doing it because you want to make money? Mm. If you're doing it because you want to make money, then you're not going to be successful. Yeah. Sooner or later, that message is going to come across and people are going to see the truth behind it. And Because, again, the consumer is invested in you. They're invested in your brand. They're invested in, the, in what you are doing and why you're doing it. And yeah. they're going to ask questions. Um, yes, South African consumers, for the most part, are extremely uneducated when it comes to alcohol. They don't know what the laws, uh, law allows. They don't know what they're drinking. They literally don't know what they're putting in their mouths. Yeah. Craft consumers are the exception to that rule. You're spending four or five hundred rand a bottle of product, you want to know what's in there. You ask the questions. You ask the hard questions. You check. And if something doesn't make sense, then they're going to bust you. And it's happening more and more and more. So guys that enter into this industry for the wrong reasons will not be successful in the long term. There's going to be a point where it's going to fail. Um, And I'll be honest with you, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Because that's natural selection. That's Darwinism at work. Um, yeah. The people that do it for the right reasons, that are passionate about their products and they live their brands, they live what they do, they love what they do, they're the ones that's going to be successful. That's the people the consumer falls in love with. The ones that can't stop talking and preaching the gospel. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is, I always tell guys, this is a, if you, whether you're a hobby distiller or you're a commercial distiller, this is something that's going to take over yeah. your life. There's a reason why my brother refuses to discuss my work with me because I've put him off so many brands, yeah. it's not even funny. Yeah. But it's, you can't stop So yourself. you share the brands with your brother, but not with me. <laughs> yeah, well, I know he's family. I have to warn him. <laughs> but no, but it's uh, when it's commercial stuff. I yeah. mean, uh, a lot of commercial products, people think they buy quality. They don't really know what's going on. Yeah. Um, I never talk 
badly about a craft product because it, that's personal opinion. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if somebody cheats and I know they cheat and I can prove it for myself, yeah, then I'll share it to friends and family. But I'm never going to put myself out there. And to, that's for people to discover themselves. And if yeah. they ask the right questions, if they know how to do, I mean, you can work out for yourself. If a place has a 600-liter store and they claim to make X amount of product and you go there and the still's not running and you do the calculation, you realize, but something's not right to, yeah. to do those amounts with this size equipment, this has to run every single day. Again, it's, it's, it's a little bit of knowledge with a little bit of common sense. Yeah. People can sort for themselves out what's true and what's not true. Yeah. How many of, of these distillers um, that you work with have got tap rooms, as in this sort of setup where we're researching? Tasting them? rooms. And Tasting so rooms. Uh, it depends on budget. It depends on uh, on location. Um, I always tell guys, uh, it's something that I advocate strongly. Yeah. Um, I always tell the guys, if you're putting up a craft distillery to just to make booze, you're wasting your own time and you're wasting my time. There is as much money to be made with on-site consumption, mm. events, uh, tasting room, tours, and all the peripherals than there is in the actual alcohol. If you if you want to remain small, if you want to make uni- be, remain unique and niche, that's the route you should go. And I mean, if you've got a distillery, if you've got this, let's say on average 100, 150 square meters, if you're not making money off every inch of that 150 square meters, then you're wasting money. Mm. So I always advocate that they should put in a tasting room, they should put in an on-con and off-con section, they should put a, be gear themselves towards events. I mean, we've had weddings in distilleries, we've had photo shoots, product launches, fashion shows, all those type of things, if the distillery lends itself out mm. to that. Obviously, that can make things a little bit more expensive because now decor and how the actual equipment looks, not just the technical can it do this, but how does it look while it's doing it, that becomes important and ups your price a little bit. But you find a lot of investors that are willing to put in that amount of money and, and mm. do that properly. Um, but the big challenge becomes, again, zoning. Mm. Um, South Africa only allows distilleries in, with certain exceptions, provincial exceptions, KZN, for instance, has different zoning requirements. But you have to be either agriculture or light industrial as a rule. Now, not everybody can afford to buy a farm. Mm. So if you're going light industrial, it becomes extremely difficult to find a nice-looking light industrial property. Um, and that's one of the things we're trying to push uh, in future with the definitions of craft, getting that into law, mm. getting a craft liquor manufacturing license, which is separate from the micro liquor manufacturing license, where we limit ourselves voluntarily to a certain maximum level. Because the problem with the current licensing, micro liquor manufacturing, is that it allows us to produce up to 5 million bottles a year. That's a hell of a lot of bottles. You can take all the craft distilleries in South Africa that can operate under one license. Mm. Um, but at that level, we're considered a noxious industry in terms of the waste we generate, the electricity requirements, water requirements, sewage requirements. So if you're putting up a distillery under uh, a micro manufacturing license, legislation and provincial government and local government municipality needs to be sure that the premises allows for that future growth because you can't stop them now halfway and say, sorry, you're too big now, this premises can't accommodate mm. you anymore. So by voluntarily limiting ourselves to a lower maximum, now we can go into a commercially zoned property. There's no technical reason not to. There's no legal reason not to. I mean, a properly run craft distillery, small one, producing, let's say, five to 10,000 bottles a month, which is big for mm. craft, um, 
that generates less waste than a restaurant, mm. than a big franchise restaurant. Um, so there's no reason you can, can't be in a shopping mall, except yeah. maybe fire safety. Yeah. But, I mean, put it in the strip mall. Uh, Belito, uh, Blackstrap Craft Distillery, don't like mentioning names, but the mm. only example I can't, I can mention. Alex is the only distillery that's in a shopping mall. And it works. Because, yeah. I mean, you've got traffic throughout the day. There's foot traffic there. More over weekends, even more in season. Yeah, until three in the morning. Exactly. So yeah. why can't we tap into that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we, we are, we don't like to admit it, but we are a third world country. But you go to first world countries, England, America, you get craft distilleries in commercially zoned yeah. property. Why on earth can they allow it as countries which by definition have stricter legislation, but our country can't allow it? Mm. It's just a question of law. The law never anticipated yeah. you could have basically a double door garage and run a profitable distillery out of it. So, what uh, what are the reasons that this whole craft boom started? I mean, from a beer background, I guess uh, it, it started with the likes of Steve Gilroy and, and Mitchells and all that. But was there something in the legislation? Um, Not really, no. I mean, the legislation was there. People mm. just didn't know about it. Okay. They didn't know how to, um, uh, how to use it, how to and do it properly. I think we played a role in that. But I mean, I think the, the big guys that kick-started it was Open Hopkins. Yeah. Uh, Lee and Lucy really, they started the whole craft scene and craze for me in South Africa. They weren't the first craft distillery. No. But they're the ones that went out there and they really made people aware. They, yeah. were, they didn't even have a brand yet. But they were out there, they were doing tastings, they were creating awareness about craft gin coming from England where yeah. they had worked previously. They knew about craft. It had already started there. It was already a thing. Mm. And a lot of their planning um, in terms of their distillery, in terms of their capacity and the way they approached it was influenced by the experiences that they had there. And I mean, I take my hat off to them. What they accomplished um, by creating that awareness and so on, I mean, the industry wouldn't be where, where it is today if it wasn't fully in Lucy. Mm. Um, and obviously there were other guys as well. I mean, Wilders had been around for ages. Draymond's up here and mm. Pretoria had been around for ages but they were just there and they were making their products and people bought from them and so on but there wasn't this drive towards craft um, craft spirit specifically uh, that we saw when gin came around yeah. and suddenly gin became this thing and it became interesting and it became um, uh, all consuming for some people mm. um, and I think the gin craze uh, which is weird because I mean, if you look at America where um, craft spirits really started. The gin craze never happened there. To this day, there's no gin craze in America because, again, their legislation is different. In America, um, you can make whiskey within a couple of days um, mm. because they don't have aging requirements for three years and so on. So there it started with craft whiskeys. Okay. But again, there was one continuous thread through both craft gin and craft whiskey, and that was cocktails. And mm. the way these products was now presented in, in bars and in restaurants and in liquor stores and so forth. And people suddenly realized, hang on, but gin is not just Gordon's, Gilby's and Stretton's that my grandmother used to drink on a Sunday afternoon while we were having the braai. I mean, there's actually a lot I can do with gin. Mm. I can turn it into a cocktail. I can put garnishes in there. And suddenly we've got flavored tonic waters and all kinds of weird stuff going on. And gin became interesting and it became, people became passionate about it. Um, but I think it, it goes deeper than that because it's not just a question of gin came, craze came along and showed people what, what can be done with gin. People were bored. Mm. Um, spirits in South Africa is boring our law is boring our law doesn't allow for innovation um, I mean stupid thing you're not allowed to put honey in gin in South Africa mm. why? why not? 
just because Table 6 in the uh, National Liquor Products Act regulations says you mean I'm not allowed to, why not? Yeah. There's no health reason why not. There's no practical reason why not. There's no technical reason why not, but I'm not allowed to do it. Yeah. Uh, and certain categories are more boring than others. And I think it started back when I was in varsity. I mean, I'm not old, old, but I mean, I'm getting there. Um, and uh, suppose we're talking about 20 years ago now. And literally every week, Every pub in Stellenbosch had a different, a new drink out. Hooch was launched, and Reds yeah. was launched, Benini was launched, and the f- different flavors, Sambucas was launched, and there was all time something different coming out. So we got spoiled for choice. Uh, we got used to trying something new, trying something different. And this has just now escalated exponentially with the millennials and the younger consumers. But all the way up to my age group, people want variety. We're not like our parents where I've got my drink and that's my drink and that's, that's all that I drink. We yeah. try different things. We want to be challenged. We want to be innovative. We want to try a different flavor mm. um, and a different product. And the, the problem in South Africa is with the exception of gin, which allows us to play around quite a bit, but still there are limits, what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. The other categories are so strict that we just can't innovate. Yeah, we can't do anything. I mean, remember when we launched our flavored vodkas and flavored tequilas, we weren't allowed to call exactly. them anything. You can't call it a flavored vodka because yeah. you're not allowed to flavor vodka. Yeah. Um, black vodka, internationally a huge thing. In South Africa, we're not allowed to color vodka. Although the vodka still tastes like vodka, we're not allowed to color it. Therefore, okay. we can't do black vodka in South Africa. Fruit-based spirits. Uh, we're not, uh, fruit-based spirits in South Africa, there is no category for it. Um, uh, Mampu, for instance. Mm-hmm. Although it's the only truly South African product, there is no category for Mampu in South African law. Um, and, and interesting fact, just side note on that, I'm passionate about Mampu, so excuse me the side note but Mampur is also the only product in South Africa that is completely multicultural and multiracial there are more traditional black distillers producing Mampur in South Africa than there are traditional farm distillers producing Mampur but people don't know this yeah. and the product category doesn't exist on our law there's no appreciation for it there's no market for it yeah. so if you make Mampur in South Africa you fall under unspecified spirit which is insulting in the first place yeah. but now we look at the law and the law doesn't allow the aging barrel aging of unspecified spirit. So we cannot do a barrel-aged Mampur in South Africa. Well, internationally, it's commonplace. Uh, brandy. We're only allowed to make brandy from grapes in South Africa. That's ridiculous. Every other country, almost every other country in the world, allows brandy to be made from any fruit, and you can call it brandy. You don't even need to barrel-age it. You mm. don't even need to age it. In, uh, in Germany and America, fruit brandies can be unaged products. You can't do that in South Africa. And that would be something like... Uh I mean, Williams and uh, Kirschwasser and all those. Kirschwasser, Williams, Bartlett, um, uh, Schlivovich, uh, yeah. you name it. There are so many categories out there. In, when I do brandy and Mampur training with the guys, they said I go through all the regional differences. I mean, it's pages and pages mm. of regionally produced fruit-based spirits throughout the world. And these guys are sitting in the class looking me dumb, at dumbstruck. They've never even heard of these products. And internationally, they are product categories and successful categories on their own. I mean, if you, my personal craft spirit hero is uh, Christoph Keller from Stahlemüller Distillery in the south of Germany. Now, Christoph Keller makes 78 different products, <laughs> 78 different fruit-based spirit products, limited batches of 10 to 150 bottles per year, total production of each type. I mean, they're completely seasonal. They're hand-picked, hand-cleaned, handmade, 78 different fruit-based spirits. South Africa, what do we have? Grapes. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, we, we love to think we're spoiled for choice, 
We're not. Yeah. We stopped being spoiled for choice in the 1950s and 1960s. When back then you could go into a little pub in Riversdale or in George or you in uh, uh, Prisca or wherever, and you would find a product on that liquor store shelf, on that pub shelf or res- uh, hotel shelf that you wouldn't find never, nowhere else in the world. It's only available in that town because it was made in that town. Now... I go to a, a bar in Santon, I go to a bar in the V&A waterfront, I go to a bar in Tokyo, I go to a bar in New York, I go to a bar in London, and what do I see on the shelf? Tinkery. The same bloody <laughs> brands everywhere. And we think we're spoiled for choice. Oh, come on, that's ridiculous. 100%. We need to get back to where things used to be. We literally, this league's goal. It might be a pipe dream, but I mean, they always said goals have to be something you can't achieve, otherwise you stop working towards them. But... From the beginning, Gert and I've bought into this dream uh, is that his dream has been a craft distillery in every town in South Africa. That every town in South Africa must have a craft distillery. Mm-hmm. Making a product that's only available from that location. And yeah. it's completely unique. And it doesn't need to be big. I'm not talking a craft distillery making 10, 20, 50,000 bottles. That's ridiculous. That's not, how can that still be craft? If you, if you can live a comfortable lifestyle, and come back to what I was saying earlier, of how much money do you need? If you can live comfortably, if you can live a good lifestyle, making 2,000, 3,000 bottles a month, why make more? Mm. It doesn't make sense. Do it because you love it. Do it because you're passionate about it. Do it because you want to do this. And the rest will take care of itself. I remember when I met uh, Gert, he said that every guy that comes to buy a distillery, he say, well, he tells them that there's only one thing that, one piece of advice he can give them, and, and that is that no bottle store will ever buy his product. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he remembers that, because that's what it was like when he started. In the beginning it was like that. I mean, and, and the presentation and everything was crappy, and... I mean, yeah. everything that was craft looked like you could only sell it at a farm stall. In, exactly. In, uh, so we've come a long way. Everything looks very sexy and very, yeah. very pretty now. But <clears throat> I think the guys making craft vodka, for example, are still struggling. Well, the thing is, making a craft vodka is, from a marketing perspective, probably the most difficult yeah. thing in the world. Um, and a large part of that is the predominance of illegal stuff yeah. on the shelves yeah. I mean I always use the example of VAT if you look at the VAT on a, on a 750ml bottle of 43% um, currently that's in the region of 66 rand 50 thereabouts sorry not VAT excise tax excise tax is around about 66 rand 50 and you add a VAT onto that because mm. yes we pay tax on tax in South Africa you're at close to 75 rand now that's just the excise mm. tax and the VAT on the excise tax that's not the packaging, the manufacturing, the distribution, the liquor stores markup, never, nothing like that. That's just the excise and the vat on the excise. But you can go to a local liquor store, most of them, and you can find vodkas on the shelf at 58 rand a bottle mm. and 60 rand a bottle. And you can tell me whatever nice story you want about lost leaders and so on. There is no way that product is legal. Mm. So, and they're mostly vodkas, mm. if you look at it. So now you've got this vodka, let's call it a suspicious vodka, on the shelf for 60 rand for a bottle. And now on the exact same shelf, because it's the vodka shelf, you've got a craft vodka for 300 or 400 rand of vodka. Mm. Now, let's be honest. A vodka is a vodka is a vodka for most consumers. There is no real difference because it is a neutral spirit that tastes like nothing. So to validate that price difference in a craft vodka opposed to a cheap illegal vodka that's on the shelf, uh, same shelf, that's very difficult. Yeah. That's extremely difficult. Now, the ideal is to 
to make your vodka a little bit different, to, to leave that little bit of taste behind so people can really taste the difference between my vodka and an absolute and a Smirnoff or whatever the case mm. may be. But again, the law interferes there. By law, South Africa, there may not be no distinctive taste in a vodka in South Africa. Wow. And that makes it difficult. So although the vodka market is the biggest in South Africa um, in terms of sales volume for mm. a spirit category, that's mostly on the low end. And that's volume-based. That's not price-based. Um, yeah. So it is, it is a challenging. It's not impossible, but it is a challenging market to get into. The nice thing, however, if you're a vodka distiller, it's easy to diversify. Because that same vodka can form the base of a gin, it can form the base of a spirit aperitif, it can form the base of a liqueur. So that's my, normally my advice to guys that want to go the vodka route, is get ready to diversify. Yeah. And be, be able and willing to adapt and make more products. Yeah. Do you, do you have a stats? How many distilleries are there in South Africa? Or craft distilleries? Can we talk in craft distilleries or craft producers? Because distilleries, that's, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. It, the, it gets a little bit complicated because un, amongst craft distilleries, we include estate brandies. Mm. By definition, a estate brandy is craft because the definition of a estate brandy is they grew their own grapes, made their own wine, distilled it themselves, aged, bottled, and blended all on the farm. So that is so by how definition. many of those are there? Ooh, I'm talking under correction. Uh, I'm thinking about 32 thereabouts. Okay. Um, best place to get that information is kbrandy.org. Mm. Um, they are, for a while now, I think, no longer part of the Brandy Foundation of South okay. Africa. They created their own organization, which is kbrandy.org. So anybody wants to see a proper brandy, go onto that okay. website and they can find that. Um, and there you get guys like Takara and um, oh, there's many of them. I can't yeah. remember all the names now. Oh. But... Uh, I mean that's that's a proper a proper brandy. If you add in craft distilleries um, to the to the spirit guys, we're probably about between sixty and seventy. I don't have the exact figures with me right now. Add in the craft spirit producers, hundred and ten to hundred and fifty approximately. Uh, I'm even having trouble keeping up these days. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's easy to keep up with the distilleries because we supply ninety nine percent of them. Uh, but when it comes to craftsburg producers, it gets a bit difficult. Okay. And then you also need to understand the difference between a craftsburg producer and a, just a craft brand. Because contract distilling is a big thing in South Africa yeah. where um, people want to be a brand owner. They've got a concept, but they don't have now the capital to start up their own distillery. So they start off with contract distilling, which again, there's nothing wrong with that. If they choose a proper craft distillery or craft spirit producer to make their product from, where I do have a problem with it is where somebody does contract distilling through a mass producer uh, and then still try to pass their product off as craft. It is happening um, at the moment. Uh, I'm not going to name any names, but the recent product that was launched that in their very first news um, publication, they admitted where and who makes the product for them. And every subsequent publication or news article, there's no mention about who makes it for them. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's, that's a warning light right there. I mean, how can you be craft if a big brand or big company is making a product for you? Again, you don't, you don't fall under the definition of craft, but also I think the court of public opinion will define you as not being craft. Mm. Okay, and let's let's talk gin because that's very topical. Mm. Can you maybe? I mean, and I really appreciate your knowledge here. Explain to us what what a gin is in terms of South African law and what you think a gin should be, okay. or what what you what you advocate the law should be changed to. Okay, South African law gin definitions changed in March last year. Prior okay. to March last year, it was basically. Um, four sentences 
And then a fifth one was added in March last year. Now, the four sentences of the original Jin law was that if any, uh, and I'm not quoting the wording now verbatim, but basically boils down to the following. If a grain-based spirit is distilled through juniper, it's considered gin. Mm-hmm. If any other category of spirit is distilled through juniper, it's considered gin. Okay, not two very important things already there. I can use any base to mm-hmm. make a gin. It does not need to be a grain base and doesn't need to be a neutral base. I can make gin from Mampur. I can make gin from rum. I can make gin from any spirit. That's the one thing. Other thing is it must be distilled through juniper. Hence, the juniper must be added in a still. That mm. means bathtub gin, true bathtub gin, where everything is just macerated and infused by lying in the alcohol is not legal in South Africa. Because at the very least, the juniper must be added through either vapor infusion or the infused distillation. But anything, everything else can be done through maceration, mm. but not the juniper. That has to happen in a still. Then the third sentence, the add mixing of any spirit obtained through one of the previous categories with any other class of spirit. That's so that means you can make a gin infusion um, by distilling grain wine or other spirit through juniper and then mixing that with anything else. So that's where gin concentrate comes in. You can make a, a concentrated gin flavor and mix that in with another spirit to stretch it. It's legal, the law allows mm. for it. And then the last sentence was 43, it must be at a minimum of 43% alcohol in the bottle. And that wasn't there before? That was. Oh. That's, that was the law so what is up the until new March last year. Under the new law, another sentence was added, which says that now, as of March last year, gin must have the distinctive aroma and taste of gin in order to be considered. Now, it doesn't oh, say juniper. juniper per se. It doesn't oh. say juniper. It says the distinctive characteristic of gin. Okay. But the distinctive characteristic of gin is juniper, so the implication is that it must have detectable yeah. juniper. Now, prior to March last year, our gins didn't all have detectable juniper. There are quite a few examples. I think consumers would know which ones I'm referring to. Um, but there were a couple of products out there that didn't taste like gin. Tastes like other things. Mm. And I was a big fan of them. With that Again, personal choice, I don't like juniper. Personal choice. Okay. Um, now, those products would not be legal. Now, this is where product approval comes in. Um, in, in South African law, if your product was approved under previous law and the legislation changes, that doesn't mean you have to change your product. It's not your fault the law changed. So if a product had product approval prior to a law change, the product can continue being produced the way it always was. And I say if it had because South African law doesn't require submission to death. Mm. The law says you must be compliant to the law, mm. but there is no enforcement of that required. So nothing in our law says you must submit a sample to DEF for product approval. Uh, it is something that we advocate, purely for peace of mind at the very least, but also for responsibility. Mm. Um, and it's actually something that I wish they would put into play on a liquor store level, that uh, for a liquor store before they stock a product, they must insist on a certificate of compliance uh, because that would protect the consumer against buying illegal or possibly dangerous products. But that's a topic for another discussion. Um, but now, as of March last year, you your product must have detectable juniper, uh, both in aroma and taste. You can't just smell it or just taste it. It must be present in both in order for it to be a gin. And that's it. That's total gin law. Now, if we compare this to other countries, UK, USA, many of you European countries and so on, they've long ago realized that you can't just have one category for gin. You have to have different categories for gin. And ideally for me, that would mean three different categories. The one is distilled gin. 
which you can use the current definition as it is. Um, then you have infused gin, where bathtub gin would be legal, where you don't need to do it in a still, so therefore it's direct infusion, it's an infused gin. That category would also allow for the addition of natural extracts and essences. And then you've got compound gin. Now, compound gin is when essences are added, artificial or nature-identical essences. And in my definition, that would mean that any artificial essence added to it, even if it's one, even if it's a colorant, then you're artificial, then you're compound gin. Um, Now, the... Some people might ask, but am I allowed to add essences to gin in South Africa? Now, the thing is, and there's a mistake even craft distillers make sometimes, or distillers make, because they, they all look at the definition of the category. And forget about Table 6. Now, Table 6 is about six or eight pages. It's the back part of the National Liquor Products Act regulations. Now, Table 6 governs uh, substances that may be added to spirits. So I've now made the spirit, mm. now I can add something in there. Now there's three columns in table six. I call it the what, the where, and the how. First column, what am I allowed to add? And if that product that you want to add doesn't exist in the law, well, tough luck, you, there's no way you can add it. So for instance, uh, carboxylic acid, you want to add carboxylic acid, doesn't exist in the table, you're not allowed to add it. Done. The where. Let's take honey, as I mentioned before. Mm. Honey is in table six. You're allowed to add honey in column one. Column two says, where are you allowed to add it? And under table six, under column two, next to honey, it says, honey is only allowed to be added to pot still brandy, vintage brandy, and brandy. And husk spirit and premium husk spirit, proper. That's the only categories you're allowed to add honey to. You're not allowed to add it to any other category. So great. What I want to add is in the table, but uh, damn, I can't add it into the product that I want to manufacture. Mm. So that's another thing you have to check. And then the last thing, the how, is to what extent or sometimes even methodology are you allowed to add this in? So in the case of sugar, for instance, spirit aperitif, liqueur, minimum 75 grams per liter of product, brandy, up to 15 grams per liter of product, all other spirits excluding gin, only one gram gram per liter of product. So you need to read through all of this before you can make a decision whether you're allowed to add something in. Now, in table six, you don't have botanicals, but you have um, natural extra, or uh, sorry, I'm looking for the exact wording now, but my memory is failing me. But basically, it comes down to natural plants and plant mm. material and so forth. That's there. And next to that is uh, nature identical. Now, nature identical is allowed in spirit aperitifs and liqueurs, but not allowed in gin. Natural extracts, which is concentrated essences, that is allowed in gin. Um, so there's a lot going on that you need to be aware mm. of. Um, and it's, yeah, I recently made a post that uh, on Facebook that said people need to be educated about mm. the law and so on. Okay, it's a little bit complicated. It's there's a reason why in business training we spend half a day just on the National Liquor Products Act, so people can actually understand it. I'm not saying everybody should have that level of knowledge, but be aware. And um, in the law, there's uh, Article 12. Uh, of the law. And the law, uh, Article 12 states that um, uh, labels may not be misleading. Mm-hmm. Now, it's one thing to say a label may not be misleading, but if people don't understand what the label is trying to say, then how can you claim that the label is not misleading? I mean, we had this whole fight now recently at DAF with a product that was launched, uh, uh, a vodka, um, where they claimed they were 10 times distilled. 
Now, okay, how how do, was it ten times distilled? And this is now getting very technical on the distillation process, but I mean, if you're looking at a column with plates, every plate is a distillation. So did you use a column that had 10 plates, or did you physically run it through a still um, uh, 10 times? Now, DAF's interpretation, which I can understand, it's a safe interpretation, is whatever you claim on a label has to be factually correct. But now in this case, with number of distillations, we've got two cases where both is factually correct. Now we have to put ourselves in the feet of the or in the shoes of the consumer. The average consumer don't know about plates. They mm. don't know about reflux. They don't know these technical terms. So when they read a label and they see they're ten times distilled on the label, then their assumption is that yo they put this through still ten times. They put in a hell of a lot of work mm. for this. I need to buy this product because there's a lot of work that went in. Meantime, it was one distillation through ten plates, and it took them six hours to make the product. And that's misleading. Does, maybe not on a legal sense or in, in the legal interpretation of it, but it is still misleading. Mm. Um, and in the end, the law is there for two things. It's to protect the industry, but also to protect the consumer. And I f- personally feel the consumer should always take preference. So if something in the law is not right, if something in the law is allowing big companies and mass producers to get away with misleading the public, then they sh- the law should be changed. Mm. When we've got... Of um, labeling requirements on food that tells us how many kilojoules and how much sodium and how much sugar and everything is in there. I don't have similar stuff yeah. for gin. I mean, there was a case, I can't remember the names and the parties involved, but there was a case in England where a craft distillery was sued by a big brand for sharing too much information, if you can believe that. <laughs> he actually put on there his entire process and exactly mm. the mineral content breakdown and all that type of things, all the technical information you can think of, he shared it. And suddenly consumers start asking questions from the big brands, but if this little guy can do it, why can't you do it? Mm. And they sued him. And he, he just changed his labels because he knew he didn't have the financial resources to challenge these guys in court. That's how big boys play the games. Yeah. It's in their interest for the consumers to be uneducated and not know what, they, what they're doing. I mean... I recently, I always suspected it, but I never really checked it until recently. And I'm not again going to name names, but people can go out and see for themselves. One of these pre-mix products that's out on the shelves, and people assume that it's a, a specific spirit category and a specific um, cola mixed with it. And they go check the, uh, but if you check the label, nowhere on there does that specific product category get mentioned. Mm. It's a vodka with a flavorant and that's it and people yeah. assume that they're buying this spirit category mixed with that cola um, because they know the branding and they know the nickname of the product and so forth and therefore assumptions are made yeah. assumption is a dangerous thing it is and uh, I think when when you I mean the brands get so strong so a particular gin brand if it does something else you just assume it's gin and I'll use a case where we had we had Ariba bubblegum tequila, mm-hmm. and they complained. So I said, "Well, now Ariba is so strong, linked with tequila, so yeah. we can just write Ariba bubblegum." Well, exactly. And people think, and people are going to assume that it is. Yeah, and it worked. It no, works. No, nobody it works every single day. Hey, that's what every brand strives for: is brand mm. recognition. I mean. When South African advertising on the cigarettes changed, um, didn't really slow the guys down. I mean, yeah. uh, Stuyvesant just branded the cars and the colors that everybody knew and loved, and they were still driving around and still making sales. And yeah. you saw Stuyvesant rep come from far down the road. Not to, okay, should I now mention Camel and everybody else as well so nobody feels left out? Mm. But I'm not, I'm using an example. I mean, th- that's what they did back then. And it's the same thing with any brand that's successful. There's instant brand recognition. 
either the color scheme or the color combination or a part of the logo in certain cases, yeah. not to mention names again. Um, and that's legal because that part of the logo or that color scheme or that font is not defined by law. Mm. So you're not breaking any laws by using that on your branding. But the customer assumes they're buying a certain product while they're not buying that product. Yeah. And then, Jin, then you've got those challenges and you've got the craft challenge uh, or the craft distiller and producer. So it's, it's very complicated. It becomes very complicated. Um, and I'm, I'm and then you get the fancy bottles. And then you get the fancy <laughs> bottles. But I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge there. Um, I advocate the use of fancy bottles mm. because it draws people attention and they and they buy with their eyes. I, I call it uh, perceived value. Yeah. Um, if you want to uh, charge four or five hundred rand a bottle, then the bottle needs to look like it's worth four or five hundred yeah. rand a bottle. You cannot play in the craft market on that price range and have an average looking mm. bottle because people won't buy you. So it is important. The problem is however, when brands focus too much on the bottle and their branding and not enough on the quality inside. Um, the... I can put it. I always tell guys, and I think this is true. You can rectify me if I'm wrong. But people will buy you because you're new. Mm. They will buy you because you have a nice bottle. They will buy you because you have an interesting label. They will buy you because of your story. Or they'll buy you just because your bottle is not in their collection at all. They will buy you once. Mm. If you don't have quality in the bottle, they're not going to buy you again. It's all good and well. You're focusing all this attention on getting good branding. But if you don't put as much and more effort in for making a good quality product, you're not going to get repeat business. And a craft distiller cannot succeed on just selling one bottle to a person in his life. Because, unfortunately, this is a podcast, not a video cast, but mm. I mean, I know, always draw a graph for the guys where um, if you're a proper craft distiller and you're not looking to make tens of thousands and more and more and more every month your marketing spend starts relatively high to get market penetration goes up a little bit just to get the brand established and then it tapers down to a marketing level but if you don't have quality in the bottle and you're not getting repeat business that marketing spend exponentially increases month after month after month because people are buying you once yeah. and there's going to be a point where you're not going to get a new like I was just saying go sucker born every minute you're not going to find a new sucker because guess what there's something like word of mouth people will tell their friends that don't waste your time buying that product because the product's not good and then you can't rely on branding or labeling or story anymore then people listen to their friends they yeah. listen to the word of mouth so quality inside the bottle is still important it's, it's cool. still more important than yeah. the branding and everything else can we talk about run? sure I'm passionate about rum. <laughs> no, rum's the next big thing. So, I mean, so yeah. I listened, uh, I, I got sucked into a big hole. There's a, I found a podcast and the, the presenter is an absolute rum geek. Yeah. So I got carried away and uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I grew up in a household where rum was, was drunk yes. and it was uh, a fun drink. Mm -hmm. That's what I remember from my dad and his mm. brother-in-laws mm -hmm. drinking, I think it was Red Heart. Mm -hmm. And we used to sneak off and steal some and mix it with cola. But I've never, ever gone back to that. Yeah. I can remember it as a teenager, but I've never got into the rum thing. Yeah. Um, and I don't do cocktails. Mm. I'm learning about it mm. as I get uh, in contact with the different craft distillers. But... Uh, is there a rum culture in South Africa? Is it only with white foam or is there hope? <laughs> All right. So, um, okay, let's 
couple of different things there. Firstly, rum culture in South Africa, yes, there is already and it's growing and it's going to be growing a lot more. Internationally, rum is the fastest growing spirit yes. category. Um, gin is still the biggest in terms of volume, but rum is fastest growing category. Now, the nice thing about South Africa from a, and somebody that's in the industry point of view is we're seven years behind the trends. So we can see what's going to happen overseas and anticipate it mm. and get ready for it. And the nice thing about a craft distiller, again, unfortunately not for a craft spirit producer because they're limited in what their equipment can do, but a craft distiller, for instance, if you're set up to work off grain, you can do anything. There's no product you cannot make. So a lot of distilleries, although originally focused maybe on uh, vodka or gin or whatever the case may be, they started their product development. They started getting ready for rum. Quite a few dedicated rum distilleries started up, um, especially in case in on the states themselves. So they've slowly but surely uh, um, been getting ready. But then the the craze, st- or not the, I won't call it a craze yet, but it hit us faster than expected. Mm. I mean, we already have three dedicated rum festivals. We've got two dedicated rum competitions. Most of the gin festivals are now craft spirit festivals, accommodating the rum and the vodka guys as well. Um, there's already a lot of attention being focused on rum. So yes, rum is mm. an up-and-coming thing. Um, my one problem, though, is that we haven't had a Lee and Lucy of rum yet. Okay. We haven't had a brand really go out there and really develop their brands. The exception being Morba. Um, mm. I think Morba did exceptionally well in locking down Nelspreet and surroundings to themselves. They, they, I use them always as an example, and um, I hope the guys don't uh, feel intimidated by this, but uh, they are in every single business class. I put them forward as a way that you should do it. They focused on their local area. They nailed down their local area before they went outwards. And you still can't, although they are exporting, and they're exporting to several different countries, mm. you still can't get them in, in Gauteng. Uh, uh, they may be in a couple of stores, but it's not something you find on no, any store. No, I haven't seen it. Because um, that's not their focus. Mm. They're focused on Nelspreet, and Nelspreet takes care of them, and they take care of Nelspreet. Mm. And so they did really, really well there. Um, but there hasn't been, I'm not seeing that same effort Mm. Um, with some of the other rum guys I know some of them are starting to do it um, but they need to do more they need to get the product out because the challenge with rum in South Africa is it's been pigeonholed Um, no offense to your dad and his brothers and so on but the common perception is that there's certain people that drink rum Kingsley (laughs) the old guys yeah your adventurers your um, speed cops your uh, miners and uh, I mean fishermen and so on that's there's kind of this this culture of certain people drink rum and other people don't drink rum which is completely wrong but just for the record that's completely wrong rum is a extremely cultured drink it's a very very it's something that's supposed to be savoured and enjoyed and drunk neatly but I dare anybody to drink Red Art or Captain Morgan neat We've never had proper rum in South Africa. Yeah. We weren't exposed to it. It's changing now. Now we've got proper rums coming in, sipping rums and so on. Appleton's is with personal for there. I'll name the brand. Mm. I've done it now. Oops, it slipped out. But yeah, Appleton's 12-year-old, that's my sipping drink. That's my go-to rum. I drink it neat, maybe a block of ice, and that's it. Because that's the way a rum should be drunk. Yeah. A rum is not something that you drown in Coke. And just for the record, the foaming is not supposed to happen. That happens because they add caramel in there to make it look dark. Um, and the caramel reacts the same way teaspoon uh, teaspoon of sugar would act in a glass of Coke. It makes it mm. foam to make it glow flat. Um, so that foaming process is not... Hell, even the dark rums in South Africa that are available in South Africa are not made the proper way. 
Proper dark rum will foam, but not just not because of added caramel. A proper dark rum is made through added molasses to up the molasses flavor profile and give you the dark color. Mm. But molasses doesn't exist in table six. Again, it rears its ugly head. Mm. Molasses is not listed in table six as an allowed substance to be added to spirits in South Africa. Hence, in South Africa, we're not allowed to make proper dark rum because we're not allowed to add molasses. So if you want to make a dark rum in South Africa, you have to add spirit caramel, which is an awful way to make a dark rum. So... The, the challenge for rum producers in South Africa is not to try and convince current rum drinkers to try a craft rum. You'll never satisfy their needs because their expectation of the product is all wrong. Mm. The challenge for a craft rum drinker or producer in South Africa or distiller in South Africa is to focus on people who've never tried rum. Ideally, people who already appreciate a wood-aged spirit, a, a whiskey or a brandy, and show them what true rum could actually be. And rum is an extremely exciting category. I mean, the thing about rum is there's no international legislation that defines what a rum is. So if you look at every single country in the world, they've got their own definitions of what a rum can be and subcategories. And I mean, Australia, not a lot of people realize this. Australia is one of the major historic rum producing countries in the world. And they've got, they've got categories that don't exist in any other country mm. in the world in terms of rum. Um, even if you just look at French law, um, the French obviously, not, obviously don't refer to rum, they refer to, uh, refer to rum, R-H-U-M. So you get two categories, rum agricole, rum industrial. Rum agricole, agricultural rum made from cane juice, rum industrial, industrial rum made from molasses. Now, that's, now, South Africans don't know agricultural rum. We've never had cane-based rum in South Africa unless it is a cane-based with some essences added to it and flavorings added to it and you end up with something else. But a proper, clear, the type you would find in Mauritius and Seychelles. Mm. That's, that's an agricole. So people, South Africans who've traveled, they would have experienced it. But the normal, average, everyday South African have never experienced that category. Mm. And that's something that we need to, to rectify. So mm. the challenge becomes for the... Um, for the craft distillers or the, uh, the guys making these craft rums to actually go out there and educate the consumers and to reiterate what I was saying e uh, earlier with some exceptions I'm not s seeing that same dedication that same passion that, we, that we've seen with certain of the gin brands and the same can be said of gin unfortunately getting back to the gym now where you get a lot of brands that's just hanging on the coattails of the guys that came before them mm. and uh, it's, uh, that's where you get the situation where people start complaining oh god not another craft distillery the, my slice of the pie is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and I hear that all the time guys customers uh, clients taking me on with why are you training guys training so many people why are you opening so many more distilleries my slice of the pie is getting smaller now I hope there's an age restriction on this podcast, but that's bullshit. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's no other way to put it. If you look at the amount of craft consumers there in South Africa, we're not even a percent of the spirit market of South Africa. Not even close to one percent of the spirit market of South Africa. And you're telling me the craft market is getting saturated, that your slice of the pie is getting smaller? Wake up. Well, I Where I live... Exactly, grow the pie. Where I live, our local bush pub there, and I'm not talking a bush pub where like, like weird guys are hanging out. I'm talking about CFOs and CEOs and bigger farmers and owners of big companies. I mean, you can't tell me they are not our target market. They're the type of people that hang out there. And it still happens that somebody meets me for the first time at the bar and we're chatting and they ask me what I do and I tell them and they've got no idea what mm. I'm talking about. They've never heard of craft spirits. There is a massive untapped markets out there but who's going out to find them? I've got, 
I love, don't get me wrong, I love craft spirit festivals, I cro- love uh, gin and tonic festivals and so forth. I think what they do is great and they keep the people talking about craft and so on. But going to it makes no sense to me. If I had my own brand, I wouldn't, you wouldn't find me there. Because no. here we are, 20, 30 craft distilleries competing for the same, what, 1,000, 2,000 people there and think we're going to make sales and impress them. I'm sorry. I would much rather go to the local church bazaar or flipping flea market or a craft food festival where I'm the only distillery and I can convert new people to craft. Because that's what we should be doing. And that's why the whole concept of seeing other craft distilleries as opposition is stupid. We should be working together to grow the pie. That way, everybody wins. Convert more people to craft. Introduce people to craft for the first time. Work together. Don't see yourself as opposition. If there's four distilleries in um, in one town, suddenly they start freaking out. I'm saying, guys, you should be rejoicing. Guess what? You can start a craft spirit route now. Work together. Don't work against one another. Just like the beer routes. In exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, do you look at wine? Do you think there were wine routes 30, 40 years ago? No, because two companies made all the wine in the country, with a couple of exceptions. But then people started working together, and the wine guys started working together, and suddenly wine routes are born. And the town I come from, Riversdale, small little town in the South Cape. I've always said Riversdale there's no, should have at least five craft distilleries, at mm-hmm. least. Because every single raw material, with the exception of uh, um, sugarcane, grows there. You've got everything. So <coughs> you've got five farms. Each farm is a small distillery, each one making a different product. Suddenly you've got a craft route. Suddenly Riversdale becomes not a place that you drive through. It becomes a destination. And that's got a spillover effect to all other t- uh, industries, tourism, accommodation, mm. hospitality, entertainment, restaurants. Everybody benefits. I mean, craft can be a stimulus for investment yeah, and for job creation. I mean, I've got a good friend who's a tour guide. Yeah. And, and he picks up the German tourists at, at the airport in Durban and drives them to Schlüsselwe. Mm-hmm. And, and the Germans say, where is the rum? <laughs> they want to drink this shit. Exactly. <laughs> it's an expectation. People yeah. expect it. Yeah. I mean, there can be a whole tourism. I mean, there's, there's um, a website we work quite closely with in America, um, uh, Distillers Directory, I think is the name, uh, Map and Directory. Mm. And they literally have a map, online map of every craft distillery and brewery and boutique winery in the world. Mm. And people use that site to plan distillery tourism trips where they go to a country with, with the express purpose to visit as many distilleries as mm. they can. It's an untapped market that some yeah. Africa has never tapped into. Yeah. And why? Because people see each other as competition. Exactly. They don't work together. Yeah. If we work together, we grow the industry. Well, I know somebody who wrote a book about beer visiting breweries. Oh, did you? <laughs> no, I, I, that's a book that sounds like a book I should read. Oh, maybe I have and I've got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been very exciting and I think we can we can keep talking about this topic and maybe we should more often. Um, I've got no problem with that. I mean, this is not, this is not a topic for an hour no. or two hours. This is Ask my students. I can go on for five days straight. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Uh, it's been lovely. It's been lovely being here at, at Gilroy's and meeting you and chatting. And hopefully the listeners have learned a thing or two if they haven't all disappeared. But it's it's been Might very be. interesting. No. Thank you very much and thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Andre. We'll chat shortly. Cheers. All right.